Hey bro, how you doing? Very well, very well. How are you? Considering that 2020 is officially the worst year that I can remember for the world, I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, it's worrying to see what's going on right now in terms of the protests and counter-protests, rioting, people getting themselves injured and yeah, just some general degradation of society and it is making me quite conscious of what kind of world my children are going to grow up in so that's been on my mind quite a bit but personally I'm I'm doing quite well you know I've had a good week I've had a, a milestone week in that I've moved into my new house which has been congrats thank you man it's been uh, stressful challenging uh, I've had to literally change all of my accounts over into this new place so you can imagine yesterday i was pretty much on the phone all day speaking to banks uh the uh, dvla uh, council tax all of that you can imagine just yeah it's made me realize that i am no longer young i'm not a child anymore uh, i've got responsibilities and bills and a mortgage and yeah it's it's, it's definitely of a bittersweet period because one of the biggest milestones i'd say of my life to date is within the context of a world that seems to just be falling apart it is bizarre it, it does showcase that change is a constant there are many people that believe that change doesn't actually occur and people don't change i do firmly believe that the world is changing but then it also shows that we do have a level of autonomy within our own lives to change it and I think that's one of the reasons, sub-reasons, why we do have this podcast, to show that change can occur and that we can be the authors of change. In terms of more of a national, global picture, I have been somewhat keenly watching the protests because I do, for the first time, see change. And I think it's almost out of fear. I'm seeing major corporations make moves that they didn't in the past when other black lives were taken ridiculously. And I'm wondering, is this because people are now calling for a a black currency um, inadvertently where people spend based on race? Or is it because they truly want to see change? I don't know yet. I've seen a lot of positive discussions take place and I'm seeing black people value their pound a lot more. I'm seeing them value their impact in the world a lot more and that's why we're seeing demonstrations and protests because they believe that they can make a difference and I think that's beautiful but I'm also seeing an economic uh, engagement from from our community more so than I think I've ever seen I'm seeing people actively seek out black businesses to support I'm seeing people yes. actively look at where they can donate their funds to help with policy change um, where they can put put their signature to in, encourage petitions and um, bills for the House of Commons to discuss. And I think that's all amazing. And one of the criticisms of the protest demonstrations and the riots from people who oppose the movement is that this isn't going to change anything. You're just 
vandalizing your own communities. You're just making noise. You're being thugs. I'm hearing that word used so much. And I know what the undertones mean. I think we all know what that yes. un undertone yeah. is, is, is referring to, referring to us as thugs and um, criminals, uh, a small minority of, of, of people during these protests committing crime. Is, is tarring the, the whole movement. And that's a, there, there's some truth to that, which is we shouldn't be committing crime to get our point across. But what I love no. is the fact that we are seeing strategy in that behind the scenes, maybe some of the people who aren't protesting are making moves. They're pulling their resources together. They're encouraging investment in other black businesses. They are building up a network of strong um what would the word be um similar minded people to to help actually force change and encourage change on the higher level of society do we need both i think we probably do i think we need the strategic suit and tie boardroom activists as well as the tactical molotov cocktail um uh no justice no peace uh grassroots ground element to, to 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 really demonstrate that we are at every level of society and it's working it's working because we're seeing major corporations globally shift and want to be seen to be making a shift whether that be the nfl netflix hbo or the bbc People do not want to be seen to be silent. And what do you and think I, caused I think that? What, why, why, why is this different? I think the difference, because I was thinking about this, I think the difference is George Floyd's words. Because his death, unfortunately, is not unique. We've seen this on numerous occasions, and there are many which aren't televised. There are many which are not documented. But he was recorded saying, I can't breathe. And that is not the first time that we've seen an individual, a black African-American, in a similar position saying, I can't breathe, and being ignored to the point of his death. And that has almost reignited, was it Martin Luther King's statement that silence in itself is betrayal? Mm. But if you are silent and in the face of racism, that you are complicit it. you're complicit in it and i think people are realizing that now people are raising that argument again and people are calling one another out saying are you silent on this matter and no one wants to be silent on this matter so it's it was a, it was a horrible statement for him to have to make but that lasting statement is what is really triggering change mm. I, I think for me as well, I've I've seen clips of police brutality in the past and they've been normally 30 seconds to a minute of abuse, really. And in some cases, the audio quality wasn't great. The visual quality wasn't necessarily great, which means that the content could be open to interpretation. People could look at it through squinty eyes and say, well, maybe it was a resisting arrest or, you know, maybe there was some miscommunication or some confusion there, which would mean that this was just an unfortunate mishap. Now, 
I still haven't seen the video and I'm not ready to watch it. I don't think I'll ever be ready to watch it. But I've seen the stills and I've heard the audio and I know it's eight minutes and 46 seconds long. The the period that that police officer's knee was on George Floyd's neck. That's eight minutes and 46 seconds. I can make a delicious meal in that amount of time. (laughs) I can head to my local corner shop and back in that amount of time. Having access to that level of quality video removes any doubt, removes any kind of challenge to the idea that this wasn't an act of barbarism. And people are forced to absorb that information. And the other thing which I think resonates with a lot of people is, especially a lot of people who've had somebody in their family die and maybe witness it firsthand, is you when you experience somebody's life slip away in front of you, there is a visceral feeling that is uncontrollable. Your own mortality gets brought into question. You understand yeah. in such a intimate way how mortal we are and that's exactly what you see you heard him cry out for his dead mum before he died that's not something that's easily erasable from your memory and one of one of my close friends actually said i he forced himself to watch it so that his anger wouldn't subside he forced himself to watch it so he'd be motivated and not forget what world we're living in right now. Part of me applauds people like that because I can't watch it. No. Um, I had a little dispute with my wife about watching it in my presence. Not that people shouldn't watch it, but it, it sickens me too much to watch it. Why do you think the UK has been so galvanised by this. Because the other challenge uh, that that we're hearing is the UK isn't as bad. This is not this this is not happening in the UK to the extent that it's happening in the US. So why are people in the UK so up in arms about something that doesn't really affect them? And and I'm proud of that fact. Because some people could almost see it as jumping on uh, the bandwagon unnecessarily because of ethnicity. But when I look at protests in Edinburgh and I don't see a single black face in the crowd, I, I suddenly realise that, okay, this is no longer simply a black issue. I think the UK has jumped on it because we truly are a global village in terms of Earth now. The borders which have been pre-designed centuries ago don't really exist in the minds of the people, in the minds of young people. They do for some, hashtag Brexit, but for many who eat Italian food, who watch American soap operas, who sleep on Swedish beds, who date Nigerian men, they don't care. (laughs) (laughs) They, they, They really don't care as much. And... The Western world is driven by American culture 
and black people have heavily influenced American culture and media specifically. It is very difficult to see American media without seeing the portrayal of black people in one way or another. Either the conscious exclusion of them. There's a recent article from the producers of Friends who asked, well, why isn't there a single black figure in your show? <laughs> or a figure, a figure of ethnicity. Or explicit cases where you have all black casts. I think the, the world has just grown up learning that black people weren't presented or weren't in actuality the way they were presented to their forefathers. Mm. And there are normal people who have very similar issues to the rest of us. People have grown up, in short, not being racist. So I don't think people are necessarily seeing a black man being brutalized that way, although they are, but they're just seeing a person being brutalized that way in a system which ignores it. And thus, to them, that could be anyone. I've got a text message to read to you, and I apologize to the author who, who, who wrote this. I'll keep her anonymous, but she's a friend of mine who is, she's not white, she's, she's, she's mixed race, but to, to, to anyone looking at her, you could be forgiven to think that she was Caucasian. And she, she wrote me a message uh, earlier this month, and I just want to read it because I, I really want to get your thoughts on what she wrote. You said, I'm so sorry I can't see you guys within the near future when the world is such a mess. I will never understand all the things that black people experience in this world that is so biased towards white people. I hope you know that I am always here to talk to you or rant at or educate about these things. If you need to scream at me, I will take it and learn from it and realize mistakes I will have made. I will always stand by you and your family. If you need to have those difficult conversations, I'm here. I have always hoped that by standing with my friends from all over the world, with such a variety of backgrounds, and educating children about how to teach people fairly, that would be enough. But it's not, and I promise to learn more and do more. You're an amazing person, and I treasure your friendship. You'll always be safe, welcome, and valued, and loved by me and my family. What do you think about that? I think it's beautiful. And I think that what we aren't speaking about is the cornering, the conundrum that many non-racist, non-visibly black people have, which is they now know that they're being challenged to show that they're not racist, even though they might not be racist. But they also know that there's a lot that they don't know. They are facing that, I didn't know I didn't know. Mm. I didn't know I didn't know that you have these issues in, in schools, in the workplace, um, in, in shopping centres, when driving. I, it's kind of mentioned, but I didn't really realise the frequency of it. I think that text message is beautiful because she's showing a willingness to learn. And that's all that black people really want. Just, just for you to be open-minded to realise that it's, it's deeper than you think. It's more than those movies that you've sort of seen which present black people being harassed. It's a lot more implicit. It's systematic. It deals with housing, finance, healthcare, every major institution in society. So on the one hand, I, I do feel for them because they are now being challenged 
to rethink everything that they thought and reposition their own viewpoints. But those who are doing it are showing a willingness to learn, which I'm really grateful for. Others, a lot more reluctant. I'm not racist. Why do I have to prove I'm not being racist? Which is an understandable statement. Absolutely. No one's saying you're racist. This isn't a white issue. This is a historic institutional issue, which you benefit from, but didn't explicitly have to build or contribute to. You're, you're absolutely right. And when, when I think about that message, I, I had conflicting thoughts. The first thought is this is a beautiful thing from a beautiful person. And I'm very grateful to have her in my life. The second thought was this was completely unnecessary because I already know you. I know who you are. I know what your values are and I know your heart. But it's the challenge of how do you prove you're not racist? And the answer is you can't. You actually can't prove that you're not racist. In some instances, it's easy to prove that everybody's racist in some way, shape or form. Yes. So with, with, with that kind of context, I, I was really struggling with it because I just looked at it and went, I know this person and do I need a parade, a procession from all non-black people telling me how unracist they are? Absolutely not. I don't want to go back into work post-coronavirus with everybody tapping me on the shoulder going, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. Um, Char Charlemagne the God, actually, very interestingly, he says the exact opposite. He talks about white people who aren't racist should start a conversation saying that, actively saying it, like, hey, hey, my, my name's John, I'm not racist. Uh, and then just kicking into the conversation just so that he knows where they stand. I don't, I, obviously he says it in a tongue-in-cheek way, but I, I understand the element of, because this is a such a dubious space and so sinister where the people who've been pulling the strings of systematic racism have been doing it, doing it from the shadows for so long. The only way to maybe shine light on these individuals and expose some of the unfairness is by people being explicit in where they stand. I just, yeah, I don't know what it solves fully the idea of getting people who I know are positive people, who I know by their actions are positive people, to kind of omit or to to kind of engage in some sort of uh, personal apology, um, you know, confession of their sins. It, it doesn't currently sit Agreed. right with me. Because it doesn't solve the issue. Mm. The issue isn't what we know. The issue is what we don't know. So we know that she isn't racist. What She knows she isn't racist. But what she doesn't know is what racism actually is. And I think if we tackle what we don't know in terms of the corporations, in terms of colleagues at work, then we can make progress. Okay, what don't we know about the recruitment of the AME people? What don't we know about the treatment about them, those people, about why those people left, about the salaries of those people. What don't we know in terms of the pay gap? What is the difference between a BAME member of staff and a white member of staff in terms of pay in an identical role? 
let's target what we don't know. So it's a learning exercise. And I think from that perspective, those people who we know are not racist will see the injustices, they'll see the prejudice and realize, okay, this is an issue. Um, I hadn't seen the video. I didn't know the video was eight minutes long, but I imagine that was a, I didn't know situation. And for many, it highlighted that. So this happens in broad daylight for that long? The police officers and had their hands in their pockets while this was happening. There were four police officers surrounding this guy for almost 10 minutes with their hands in their, po in, in, in their pockets while this guy was begging for his mum and eventually went silent. And even after he went silent, after he stopped moving, they didn't shift. There was no, no, there was no remorse. And to top it off, the police department said that he fell ill from a medical complication. If people know what systematic racism is, there you go. I saw a video, um, and I'm going to send it to you at some point, by an Asian man, and he highlighted the importance of not being silent whilst Asian. So he highlighted that, well, if, if you zoom out, the shop owner was Asian, mm. who was seeing all of this occur, who called for the police. The police officer standing in front of the police officer with his knee on his neck was, I believe, either Filipino or Vietnamese. And he stresses that many people who have gone to America from the Asian continent have gone there for a safer life. They have a history of protesting in their own countries but they've been able to go to america through the bill passed in 1965 which was fought for by martin luther king but that bill which allowed for a level of freedom um for ethnic minorities was almost cc'd into asia and allowed them to come in so their way into america their way into a safer new home came because of a black struggle and whilst they might love the black people and have spent the last two months watching The Last Dance and go to Kanye concerts and wear Jordans. They are silent when it comes to black oppression. And he was saying this as an Asian man, sharing the ills within his own community, how blackness within India and Pakistan is seen as something negative, that black itself is a dirty word, mm. that the actresses actively promote skin lightening products so that they do not look dark. And I just found it fascinating how this is such a major issue for every ethnicity. It is not a white black thing. Everyone has a part to play. And that's why I'm proud that I'm seeing an element of change that those who have power are realizing that it could hurt them where they care most, which is their finances. <laughs> and thus they have to move. First of all, 20 minutes in, welcome to Expensive Lessons, the podcast about business where we've spent the last 20 minutes talking about racial injustice and I make no apologies for that. We have a set of questions that we want to, to delve into which are a bit more business related. I don't know whether we'll get onto them. We'll see how this goes. I, I'm, I'm very keen to, to, to delve into this a little bit more. And yes. I feel like you mentioned something which is very close to my heart, which is economic impact. Um, now, we've talked about the problem, 
I hate talking about a problem without providing solutions. So that's where I want to challenge you and challenge myself to delve into what are some of the solutions. And I've been thinking about this a lot and I want to get your thoughts and I want to get your ideas as well. One of the things that I will say is I can't remember a time in history where a group or community got respect by asking politely or asking nicely, where they petitioned, where they uh, did, did, went through all of the correct channels only and received what they wanted. There needed to be an effective business case for why equality and fairness was a good thing. Even if we went back to the Mississippi bus boycotts, why did the um, local area change their policy with regard to positioning of black people on the buses? Was it because they were being nice? Was it because they cared about the feelings of black people? It was because they were losing a lot of money and black people organized. There were carpools. Some people walked to work. Some people um, would stand outside bus stops to monitor and identify the black people that were getting on the buses. Now, I'm not calling for shame, but I am calling for collective responsibility and collective responsibility that impacts organizations, companies, where it hurts, which is their pocket. It's not in their buildings. Don't go to JD and take some trainers, which are insured and the company gets their money back. It's stop going to JD if they're racist. And this is how you make change. And we are seeing a lot more of the junior companies or the newer companies, the likes of ASOS, for instance, Boohoo, who are still relatively new, implement a very strong stance on diversity and inclusion. Now, I'm not the biggest proponent of all things diversity and inclusion. Sometimes I think we go a step too far. And I'll give you an example of where I think we go a step too far. I hate BAME. I hate the term BAME. B-A-M-E makes me feel sick. I am not a BAME person. I am not a, what is it? Black, Asian. Black, Asian, minority ethnic group, I believe. So why are you calling me black, Asian, minority ethnic group? I am black. Don't call me BAME. And don't, basically what what you're saying is I am non-white. And... I also, for that same reason, hate the term people of colour. I don't know how we've managed to grab that term and pull it back into regular usage for us as people. So basically, we are identifying ourselves as, once again, people who are non-white. There's very little I have in common with a Vietnamese woman, but we are both people of colour. There's very little I have have in common with um, an, an Asian doctor who graduated from oxford but we are both people of color sorry i think the the, i think the reason that phrase has emerged or or not emerged has been almost taken over by the black community and more so people who are asian is that they've tried to group their struggle they've realized that it's not only a black issue they've realized that actually the Sri Lankan male 
has a lot of the same issues as the Caribbean boy on the streets of London when it comes to prejudice. Why? Because they're both wearing the same Adidas tracksuit. But but this is where the problem comes. Sorry to no. interrupt. I was just going to say the problem comes in that you may say that we have the the same um, illness, for instance. Um, oh no, I'll, I'll say I'll say that differently. You may you may say that we have the same symptoms. Oh, we're both demonstrating the same symptoms, but that doesn't mean we have the same sickness. And I think that's the problem. So if you group us all together, assuming that we both have the same experience and we're both struggling for the same reasons, you actually miss some of the nuance. And one of the things I'll say about that is Asians, and what I mean by that is people from the Far East, uh, predominantly China and Japan, they are people of color. However, they are number one in terms of um, uh, average salary. So people who are from an Asian background, um, as I said, Far East, um, China, Japan, etc., Southeast Asia, on average, and to be honest, that's not fair because I'm, I'm grouping a lot of people into that block, but let, let's refer to people from Chinese origin only for the moment. They are number one in terms of salary. They, they make more money on average than white people in this country, but they are people of colour. And I don't mean this to be disparaging, but I w- once again, I would say their experiences from the black experience is going to be very different. So do we need a different strategy as black people? Do we need to pool our money together as black people and not as people of colour in order to advance the the, the message, advance the, the, the well-being and lifestyles of black people? Absolutely. That doesn't mean that we disparage or we discourage anyone else who is caught up in this umbrella term, people of colour. But do we need an active strategy specifically to help the challenges that black people are going through? I think we do. Sorry, I interrupted. No, we, we do. And on that note, if we go there, do we know of people who would be regarded as being black? Now, that phrase in itself is so loaded but don't regard themselves as being black. Interesting. But would regard themselves as being coloured. I know of social media influencers who historically did not regard themselves as being black. But the world would have. And thus they adopted coloured. Now, why is that? Is that because they were raised by a white parent, predominantly, and absorbed into white culture? Is that because most of their following and their peers are white? Or is that because they didn't feel like they fitted in to the more Afrocentric black community? Is it because of shadism within the black community where they felt that they were treated differently because of the way they looked, but didn't actually ask to be treated differently because of the way they looked? There are so many layers and nuances to this that I do understand when some people especially black women um, refer to themselves as being coloured because of their experiences previously by other black people. No, it's, 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 it's a fair point and it demonstrates the nuances here. And, and this, for me, it highlights the need for us to have a very clear strategy around what we do next. So in terms of the term black, you've got a very good point in the idea that people who are mixed race, 
may identify as black. We've got people who are white, shout out Rachel Dolezal, who identifies as black. So the term black in itself is an intangible. It doesn't even mean what we think it means in some instances, because you could be half white, half black and be considered black. But I think if you are going to solve a problem, you first need to diagnose a problem. So I'll give you an example. One of the, I, I, I'm market intelligence uh, manager. I, that's, that's what I do on a regular basis. I provide market intelligence insight to a range of companies. And one of the key questions that comes my way is, can you tell me what the value of so-and-so market is? So for instance, you know, someone might come to me and say, what is the value of the intelligent mobility market? So this is driverless cars. This is um, seamless journeys. This is uh, flying vehicles one day, for instance. What is the value of the intelligent mobility market? If I'm going to solve that problem or answer that question, the first thing I need to know is what do you mean by intelligent mobility? Not what do you kind of mean by it? Like what do you approximate to mean by it? What exactly do you mean by it? Because if I then go and do some analysis to say, to, to identify the intelligent market mobility, and I look at cars alone, and I look at all of the things about connected vehicles, cars, etc., and then I provide that analysis to you and go, and you say, well, why didn't you do any analysis around planes? Why didn't you do any analysis around trains? Then you know, I haven't solved your problem. So the first challenge for, 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 for this is to, in as much detail as possible, it may take three or four pages, but clearly identify the problem and clearly describe your nomenclature. When I say black, I mean this. When I say oppression, I mean this. When I say racism, I mean this. At this time, no offense. I love my people. I do not want to hear about a random person on the street who was rude to you. Not because it isn't hurtful, but the fact that people are jerks. And I don't want to talk simply about people being jerks. Because if I was to do a call-in radio show and ask the question, when, you know, tell me a time when someone was rude to you. Tell me a time when someone was disrespectful. We could, we could have hundreds of thousands of people of all races engaging in that discussion about when people are rude to them. That's not what we're talking about here. What do we actually mean when we refer to oppression? I think that's the key thing. And what, what is the agreed term amongst our community? Because that's something that if it's not agreed internally, we can't address it with clear strategy. Once again, we're approximating a solution with a bad problem set. We're getting into technical um, business talk here. But sometimes we need a strategic approach in order to address these problems. So my point here is we need to clearly define the problem. When we say black, what do we mean by black? When we say oppression, what do we mean by oppression? When we talk about systematic racism, what exactly do we mean? Because I promise you now, those three terms that I just mentioned, if I went to the um, protests today and asked a random selection of people, what does this word mean? I would get three distinct answers, which isn't a way forward personally. Whilst I agree with that, I think the success of prejudice of people from the African continent per se, 
comes through those murky terms, i.e. black wasn't ever a defining race. It wasn't a, a, a term that black people gave themselves. And thus, in centuries where they've tried to almost own it, they've owned the baggage, mm. they've owned the label. Um, it, it goes back to the likes of Emil Kant and philosophers who decreed that the black person could never do anything of value. So you're trying to almost own that term which was given to you, which by default was derogatory. But we have, because there's nothing else. And thus we, we are grouped in the same way that, well, the Western world is rather broad and vast, and there are many people who are Caucasian slash white, but they're, they're vast also. Um, Caucasian from memory, it, it came from a European, was he from Finland? A, a European scientist who was trying to look into intellects of different races, and he came up with the, the, the term Caucasian. So these terms aren't as old as we think they are, but they do have a history and they are loaded in their meaning. And I think that the issue that we'll have is if we're trying to diagnose what they actually mean, we have to go back to the point that they were invented for division and thus they, they cannot bring any source of wholeness. When it comes to racism, I know that recently one of the uh, dictionary publishers in America uh, was challenged to change the denotation of racism to include institutional racism. Because I think that's the big issue. That's all I really want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Because blackness is so broad. You have people in the African continent who look whiter than white. Yeah. <laughs> but they might subscribe to being black, which I would not argue against. Because they will know more about that nation than I would, or that continent per se. I, I don't really care about the colour. My issue is the treatment of colour, which isn't Caucasian. Mm, so there's a couple of things based on that. So the first thing that I'm taking away from this, and it's absolutely right, is that the concept of black is intangible. And it has been because it was a word used to denote a certain type of underclass. And yes. even when we think about the one drop rule in America, that if you have a drop of black in you, you're black. And in France, you had very interesting terms. Um, the author of The Three Musketeers, I think his name was, and uh, apologies if I got this wrong, it's Alexander Dumont. Mm. And I think he was 17th century, maybe. He was mixed race. And the term that they used was quadroon. And that was specifically to denote the amount of black he had in him. And we have these intangible terms that have kind of mutated and evolved over time. And my my feeling while you were talking... Can you see how deep that is? Because by default, it suggests an impurity. Exactly. By default, it, it suggests a tainting something which would not necessarily pure but was whole but was not tainted prior was the default setting and white. this is it we do live in a world where white is the default and 
White is an intangible because under white you have Irish, you have German, you have Norwegian, you have Australian. Well, Australian, that's a question mark right there because we know what real Australian, well, uh, indigenous Australians look like. Um, you have uh, Czech Republic. You have all of these people, as you said, you have people in, in, in Africa who would refer to themselves or would be referred to as white. And in certain contexts, could both be black and white. And, you know, there are also places like, for instance, uh, Venezuela, where you have people who have very light skin, who, depending on the environment, could potentially be both white and people of colour. Which highlights that, the issue we have here. And that's why I don't, I don't get into it. Mm. Because we are all coloured. Yes. Once we, the, the more we have the conversation as to, okay, what colour are you, what colour are you, you're perpetuating that idea that we are not all coloured. The issue isn't the colour of our skin. The issue is how that skin tone is treated. For me, institutionally, I don't care like you about the individual instance um, because it's subject to interpretation. Yeah, she was rude to you at the till, but she had a bad day. She got dumped. It's nothing to do with your hair. What I care about are the implicits. And I think it's only when we start to explore what we don't know that those people who aren't actually explicitly prejudiced will see that there is a bigger issue. And that's what that video did. I think it highlighted to many white people. Shout out to my people in Edinburgh. I was really proud of you who saw that, who probably have very little contact with many black people, but realize that that is a social ill. When, when we see instances of great atrocities in the Far East or Mongolia, you see the activists go there and say, we can't have this. This is a crime against humanity. <laughs> They're not doing that because of race. They're doing it because someone is being butchered and victimized and is not being defended. And I think the facts allowed people who were as far away in Edinburgh to also do that. So, to be explicit for me, the don't knows that I want to know. I want to know how many black kids, according to British registers, apply for certain universities and don't get in. <laughs> I want to know how many black people, according to those application forms, apply to certain jobs and don't get interviews. I don't know the percentages. Because once we just highlight the percentages, just throw them on a board, then you, being the audience, can make your own decisions. But let's get those facts. How many, what is the percentage difference between um, black and white applicants or black and white workers for salaries? What is the percentage of black people who have entered into certain sectors? What is the percentage of black people who have applied for those sectors? I know that there have been under 20 black head teachers in the UK. Let's just let's let, that, let that sink in. 2020, they've been under 20 black head teachers. That's not even enough to have an 11 aside, bro. You can't even have a football match. Th these kind of figures raise questions and they start discussions. Once you do that, under the premise that most people aren't that bad, they'll start to reevaluate. And thus they'll put in structures, i.e. the Romney rule. I believe it's the Romney rule in NFL. Or is it in, I think it's in NFL. 
where for every coaching job which comes up, the American National Football League, they have to interview one person of colour. Now, while some people might not deem that to be fair, what it did do was open the door for people who probably were qualified, but were completely ignored because of their name or because of their race. So now that they have a fair shot of getting an interview, the person who does care about money first and foremost and success will interview them and might actually see, well, actually, I wouldn't have invited this person initially, but they're the best person for the job. That, for me, is better than positive discrimination where you just hire loads of black people to say, to increase your percentages. Because you're, you're just doing them a disservice. You don't actually believe they're great. You just want to promote that 25% of your workforce are black. See, this touches upon something which is very important to me. And it's very, it's very key for our, our, our future as, as, as a black community. We need to know our statistics. We need to know the data well. And we can't be data deniers. We see that happening on both sides now. People who are you know, supportive of our community and people who oppose it. They use the data in order to per perpetuate their own narrative. Now, the thing, I'm a scientist by trade, I'm an engineer and a mathematician by discipline. And the reason why I love data is because it is objective truth. Numbers yep. are numbers. They are factual. They don't change depending on what type of day you've had. Now, people's interpretations of those numbers, the context behind those numbers are important, but numbers are numbers. And the only way that we can progress is if we have a clear handle on our numbers that is objective. Not how we feel, but what we know. And a lot of the numbers will be in our favour, but also some of the numbers won't. And that's okay. Rightly so. That's okay. We don't have to win every victory statistically in order to, to, to defend our humanity. On some occasions, we are going to come across periods where we identify some really painful truths about the black community. We need to delve into that and we need to solve those problems ourselves rather than looking yes. away from those issues and saying, you know, that's not right. That's incorrect. If we are using the facts to, if we're using the data to defend ourselves when the data is on our side, we also need to put our hands up and say, okay, well, this information demonstrates that we need to put in some work and we're going to do it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So what I would encourage people to do is know your statistics well. Know how many people, how many black people are applying for jobs and what the success rate is. What's the incidence of recruitment for the black community versus other communities? Really important. What is the average salary of a black 30-year-old um, compared to their white counterparts? And what are some of the contributing factors to that? And how could we as a black community affect it? But then how do we change policy or encourage politicians to make things more fair? So there's many things that we can do, but the key thing is we need to have the statistics on our side and we need to not be the science or data deniers when the numbers don't match our feelings. Because when we actually can hold up our hands and say, no, those statistics are correct, 
you know, where we need to make some changes there, then people are more inclined to accept when we are holding up numbers that cannot be refuted. I couldn't agree more. I remember when we were younger, um, in the early 2000s, Lambeth specifically had the highest rate of teenage pregnancy in Europe. Now, if we delved into those percentages a little bit further and discovered that a significant proportion of those were from the black community, that will be something that we would have to deal with, honestly, objectively. But the, the numbers don't lie, and people will be driven by the numbers. I, I look back to the suffragettes and the suffragists. Yes, they, they fought for um, women empowerment, but it really wasn't until the wars, where many men had actually left, that society realised it needed women economically. So we need to be able to identify where we're needed economically for their change to happen first financially and then hopefully socially. Why do I mean financially and socially? We've heard of the instances in the past where you have um, NBA teams run by racists and it wasn't very clear that they were racists and it seems completely ironic when 75% of the team is black but later on an audio comes out by the owner who clearly shows that he could he could have been living in the 1800s but economically he doesn't mind because they're making him money but socially he hasn't changed yet let's look for the economical change first because that's what will help our community long term maybe you will change the minds of certain individuals but the truth is racism prejudice is a mindset can you definitively change that no but can you change the ramifications of it yes Amen. Um, you're, you're, you're so right. And the thing that stuck out when you spoke was that people will be driven by the numbers. And I will add something to that. I would say the decision makers are driven by the numbers. So we need to business case. I know it sounds gross. I know it sounds unromantic, but we need to business case the impact that we are having in society. Why is it positive to have equality in this world? It feels like I shouldn't have to do that. Because, yes. you know, my humanity uh, isn't up for discussion here. I'm a human being. I should be treated fairly. But the people who are the decision makers have got their own microcosms. They've got their own concerns and they've got their own bottom lines to address. They don't have as much empathy as we would like them to have. And by trying to instill empathy in them, we're fighting a losing battle. Where we can encourage them is explain to them, how this will affect you. How is inequality affecting you negatively right now? And it almost certainly is. If we're looking at some of the, the uh, disorder that's currently occurring right now, are people being are people benefiting from that? Well, if you're a talk sh uh, a radio host who benefits from racism, you're having a great time right now. But it, the average person in in the world are they benefiting from this are they able to con contribute to gdp in a positive manner i'd argue no so with all of those things in mind i think it's so important that we've got a good grasp on the data a good grasp on the numbers so that we can encourage the powers that be to make change as well as taking some of the power away from the powers that be it, it by by grabbing a hold of our own purse strings yes by 
strategically positioning our investment and by pooling our resources effectively. Now, I want to kind of recap because this has been completely free form and we've, we've made some really interesting points. So we talked initially um, about the, the, th the first thing we discussed was resources and pooling our resources as a community. Unfortunately, in this world, the power that we wield is linked to the resources that we hold. And positive is that black people every day are gathering more and more resources. So what we need to do there is accumulate those resources, have a driven black agenda, and ensure that we actually allocate those resources in support of that, that agenda. The same way that other ethnic minorities are doing right now. We see that happen in other communities. It's something that we should be doing effectively. And we are seeing it. We're seeing people put their pound in black businesses. We are seeing people sign up to relevant petitions. We are seeing people um, lobby poli um, uh, politicians in an effective way. So these are the things that we can do. And these are the things that we're seeing that are going to have positive results. The other thing that we talked about is understand the discussion. And... You know, unfortunately there are people who are angry but haven't been able to articulate why they're angry and it's not good enough because at any point you could be selected to be to speak on behalf of the black community and we saw this in the 60s in uh, in the united states where we had a movement of very well-educated black individuals, whether it was followers of Martin Luther King, followers of the Black Panthers, who, if they were stopped to be spoken to, they knew their stuff in detail. And that's because they lived it. They knew what it meant to be black. They knew what they were fighting for. They knew what oppression was. They weren't talking about the shopkeeper who gave given them funny looks. They were talking about not being let into schools. They were talking about their position in society. And I think if we understand the topic in detail and understand what exactly we're fighting for, we'll have a better and stronger voice as a collective. The next point we talked about was statistics and we need to know our data. We need to know what our KPIs are for if we're going to refer back to a business term. What is the measure of success? How will we know when we've achieved our goal? What are we measuring? You know, how, what is the incidence of black um, black people applying for specific jobs and being successful? How many black headmasters are there? How many students do we have in top-tier Russell Group uh, universities? These are the things that we need to measure, and these are the bits of information that our community needs to know so that we can see whether progress is happening. And once again, I don't I don't want to undermine the hard work that is happening because I believe so many people are doing fantastic things here. But as a community, I think that's an area where we can educate ourselves in more detail. I've got maybe a last controversial one that I want to talk about. Ooh, which so do may... I. Go for it. <laughs> okay, I'll talk about mine and I'll get yours. Well, my one is about being empathetic. So Martin Luther King before he died, was organising another march. He was, he was organising a march not based around black people or skin colour. He was organising a march based on being poor, based on the poor people of society. 
And that march didn't have a skin color. He was getting white working class people, uh, uh, galvanizing white working class people, gal galvanizing people from other ethnic groups, galvanizing obviously his, his core black supporters and holding a message or a vision around support for all workers. And interestingly, when he was working on that vision, that's when he was targeted and assassinated. And I think there's something so powerful in forgetting some of these socially constructed ideas like race, which create barriers around us and encouraging us to galvanize. There's one thing which I found very interesting about some of the riots and some of the protests and counter protests that we've seen uh, of, of late which is of the black community in London, the vast majority of us would be identified as working class. Of the counter-protesters uh, counter who were against the Black Lives Matter movement, the vast majority of them on the streets were working class. These are people who have been underserved by society. They have more in common than they do opposed. And that's the thing that we need to accept. I grew up in Brixton, Angeltown, and there were so many white people who were living the exact same existence as I was. If you talk to those people about white privilege, some people who didn't even have windows, literally, that they were privileged, they would understandably be outraged by the concept. But the point is we've got so much more in common that if we can actually galvanize some of the people who may be staunchly opposed to what we are currently suggesting and make it absolutely clear that this affects you too. We are here to understand you. And what that means is stepping back from our own feelings and actually having some of those difficult conversations and not shutting people down when they have an opposing view, but finding what we have in common as opposed to what we have um, opposed to one another to ensure that we actually make positive change. One statistic that sticks in my mind is the demographic that is worse, is, is the most worst served in the school system. It's not black kids. The worst demographic to be in school right now in terms of your future prospects is white working class male. Yep. If you're a white working class male, you have the least likely chance of going to university. You have the least likely chance of getting um, above the national average salary. You have the least likely chance of buying a home. So these are the types of things that, once again, comes back to the idea of data. We need to understand this stuff in detail so that we can empathize with these people and get them on our side. Because with any positive change we're going to, to make as you mentioned in terms of the was the 1968 bill that Martin Luther King encouraged, it, it has a knock-on effect on other underserved or underrepresented individuals in society. So it's it's a hard one because I know people are going to refer to the racism that they've, they, they've received at the hands of certain white people. And some of these people who are currently protesting or counter-protesting but as a Christian, I think it's very easy for me to empathize with these people as hurt people, broken people who are looking for answers. And we need to try and solve these problems together. If you look at the, the truly radical groups, um, because Black Lives Matter is not a radical group, 
I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the far-right groups across the Western world. They pry on the white working-class male because he is the angriest male in society right now. Because of various factors, upbringing, lack of mobility, opportunities, education maybe, socialization, he feels hindered and restricted in, quote-unquote, his own country. For those people who don't believe that class is a bigger, not as big, an issue as race in the world, probably don't because of the videos that we see. And yes, the, the violence is horrendous and it leads to that immediate visceral reaction. But I would like that listener who doesn't believe that to think about their mother's native land. In that land, which is the bigger issue? Class, i.e. creed, caste, tribe, or race? Class is a significantly bigger beast worldwide than races. Classism is something that we as black people have mastered ourselves very well. <laughs> oh, yeah. If we are able to acknowledge what Martin Luther King acknowledged, that the bigger ill is the exploitation of the working classes, the proletariat, then we will be able to actually make change because everything goes down to the pound, the euro, the dollar. And the propensity of big business just booming is at the exploitation of the working classes. You think it's your race. Yes, they have certain views about your race, some ill-formed, but on the most part, they care about developing their company, growing their sales based on your work. And in terms of that pound, my controversial point, and people might hate this, do not merely give your money to a black company because they're a black company. Yeah, I said it. Why do I say that? Excellence. <laughs> what, what we should be subscribing to is excellence and not black excellence. Why do I say not black excellence? Not because I don't believe that black excellence exists. I believe that black excellence is excellence by a black person. But because of excellence. There is a spirit of excellence. There is a quantifiable acknowledgement of what excellence is. That's what we should be ascribing to. Pay for excellence. Now, if you can pay for excellence and that is produced by a black person, brilliant. Should you seek for excellence produced by a black person, go for it. But what I have seen recently, and it's, it's disturbed my spirit and I've struggled to put it into words, is that everyone who owns a black business now on social media feels almost entitled to your pound. Mm. Purely because they're black. No. And you, you see it and you realize that actually is this the new strategy? Because this strategy could very well work. Um, I, I've seen individuals because of this current movement grow their profiles rapidly and suddenly be interviewed by noticeable magazines because they're speaking the loudest. So if you're a company and you're speaking the loudest about being a black company, potentially you will get sales through that avenue. However, I think there's something disingenuous about that if you yourself are not promising excellence. Do not sell your skin color, sell excellence. 
Should they know that you're black owned? No one cares. Tell them that you're black owned. But ensure that alongside your race, there is a guarantee of what that person is going to receive. Now, I'm throwing that out there to people who potentially are currently doing it or are currently seeking black owned businesses so that I can hear their views. Am I crazy to say that? Or could it potentially go too far that the individual who has a company that's black feels entitled to your money purely because they are black? That's amazing. Um, I really like that point. I think it's critical because not only should we be expecting excellence, we should also be delivering it. We should have the respect for our customers to always produce the optimum. But on top of that, we also need to live in a pragmatic society, which means that our skin color and that label as black owned business is bigger than us. What happens if somebody takes a punt on a black owned business during this period, there are going to be white people that are going to, for maybe for the first time in their life, search out black businesses to support. What happens when they receive poor quality? What happens then? So it's so paramount that during this period, we can produce excellence so that any misconceptions about what it is like to work with a black business are dispelled. This is a great opportunity, possibly an opportunity we're not going to see again for another decade for us to change the narrative around what it means to be a black business. We all know the cliche of the Jamaican shop when you're going to get your takeaway. And the, the, the joke is that if they're not rude to you, the food isn't good. We need to change that because this is an opportunity for us to actually get more money in our pocket. And me producing good quality as a black business actually has a knock-on effect on people, people's perceptions of black businesses in general. Definitely. Black people have bad perceptions of black business. So we need to work together as business owners, as communities in general, to help change that picture so that the, the, the stigma disappears. It's, in, it's incredible that we got here. I, I just wish that everyone interrogates the numbers. I think that's, that's the only way that we're gonna get real change. Highlight the stats, ensure that it's objective, there is a great deal of emotion in this and there are many people who believe that emotion will subside eventually and things will just go back to normal. Um, but in, in interrogate the numbers, what impact is this actually having beyond life being taken? Which is a terrible thing to say because life being taken should be enough. But it never has been historically in any situation. No. So to summarize, have an economic impact. Pull your money and have an economic voice. Know your identity and your history. Who are you and why are you oppressed? Educate yourself. Three, statistics. Don't be a data denier. The decisions will be made by people driven 
by numbers. For be empathetic, galvanize the underserved around a common good. And five, expect excellent from black businesses. And if you are a black business, deliver excellence. Amen to that. Amen, bro. This has been a really, really interesting one. As I said, it was kind of completely freeform. We had a completely different uh, agenda when we started this call and it's gone down a completely different road and I'm glad it did. Um, I feel like there's been a lot bubbling up in me in terms of this discussion and I've managed to get it out. I'm sure some of the things that I've said are going to be unpopular. Um, I'm happy to stand by pretty much everything I've said. And I'm also happy to be educated. If there's things I've missed, if there's things I don't know about your experience, if you're somebody of a different origin or a different background and maybe something that we've discussed has rubbed you up the wrong way, let us know. Because this is a time for us to have painful discussions. I, I, one thing I can promise you is I will never shy away from a painful discussion. And if you've got something to say, something to challenge, Let's have that conversation. Let's be different from the people before us. Let's use our words. Let's use strategy to find a way forward. And let's win-win. Let's find a win-win for, for everybody involved in this situation. I don't want to win only if other people have to lose. Definitely. There is a way that we can all win. There are definitely expensive lessons in all that we don't know. So it's, it's crucial that we interrogate what we don't know. Yeah, man. Thank you, bro. It's been amazing. Um, join us next week for another very interesting episode. And I really hope that you enjoyed this one. I will definitely be looking at comments and looking at feedback to see if this is the type of content that we might produce again in the future. Uh, but that's enough from me. Have a great week. Stay safe. Look after yourself. Love. Stay safe, people. Take care.